0: I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself back in the Middle Ages. It's a hot summer's day, somewhere in Northwest Europe. You're seated on a hard wooden bench in the stands of a tournament, sponsored by the king himself. The festivities are about to start. The merry melodies of a troubadour waft on the dusty breeze, warming your spirits almost as much as that spiced wine you sampled in the market outside the gates. And there, You spot the first competitor. A knight right before your eyes. So tell me, what's he like? And I want detail, starting with what he looks like. Because I think it's safe to assume that you're imagining a man. Sorry, ladies, but fear not. I'll also bet that ladies, definitely with a capital L, play into whatever ideas you have about your knight but we'll be coming back to that. For now, back to what you see. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess it's an imposing figure, clad head to toe in silver armor so bright in the sun that you're dazzled as you blink up at him, perched atop his massive white steed. The very picture of nobility, an elegant sword slung by his side. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume that's pretty much it. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. Being human is a pretty curious gig and always has been. First of all, let me say how excited I am to be back. It's been a long summer in the longest year, well, Ever. And this latest break from the podcast has shown all of us here at Working Overtime just how much creating this show means to us. From the endlessly fascinating jobs and work related topics we explore, to the amazing guests we're privileged to host, to you, our listeners. So thank you for being part of something that means so much to Aiden and Raz and to me. And we're super excited to share the work we've been doing behind the scenes, growing and improving. Generally, switching things up in the old time machine as we do. And reflecting on the episodes already in our catalog, as well as those we recorded during our break, a few things really stood out. And that's the degree to which being a human is a curious gig, you know, as I said at the beginning in my shiny new introduction. You know, and the fact is, it always has been and shows every sign of continuing to be for as long as we humans continue to do what we need to do in order to make a living on our short turn around the planet. fortitude, loyalty, gallantry. These are just some of the qualities that define our conception of the medieval knight, brought together under a code of conduct that emerged late in the 11th century and became known as chivalry, from the old French term chevalerie, or in plain English, horse soldiery. The ideas of chivalry were strongly influenced by the Crusades, a series of military campaigns in which Western European Christians sought to halt the spread of Islam. As such, along with military skill, the chivalric code encompassed piety and other virtues promoted by Christian religion. It also emphasized courtesy and a special form of deference for women. But how close were the myth and reality? Lucky for us, we've got two experts on the topic of medieval knighthood to take a close look at how it actually played out on the ground, and particularly on the battlefields. So let's get suited up and make our way to the Tilt Yard, shall we? Our guest experts are Jem Daduchu and Sam Wilson and they've promised to let me down easy if it turns out that medieval knights didn't spend all their time slaying dragons and rescuing damsels in distress. Jem, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. No worries.
1: Thanks, Karen. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to get the lowdown on all things chivalrous. So first, let me introduce to our audience, the first guest, who actually some of you might know, Jem, Jem comes and visits us because he's got a lot of amazing stories to tell, but Jem Diduchu is a historian and author of eight thrillingly readable history books, many concerning military regimes and conquest from ancient Rome right up through the British Empire. He read archaeology and medieval history at the University of Wales College of Cardiff, and as befits a great storyteller, he also writes historical fiction. Jem is published by Amberley Press and his books are available through Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Sam Wilson is an archaeologist specializing in the study of medieval and post-medieval conflict. He studies the physical remains from battles to reconstruct the experiences of individuals caught up in past conflicts. He also takes a hands-on approach as a historical reenactor so as to experience what it really was like to wear armor or use medieval weapons. Sam has worked at iconic military sites at Bosworth and Waterloo and directed the search for the 1471 battlefield of Barnet, a key battle in the Wars of the Roses. All right, guys. So first thing, like I always do, I'm going to ask you to set the stage for us if each of you could give us a quick couple of sentences on the time period and the part of the world that we're gonna be focusing on today in our conversation with you. Jem, why don't you start?
2: Okay, well, the origins of the Knights comes from largely France, certainly Western Europe, starts in the 11th century, and goes on till well exactly when Sam's going to jump in, I'm sure, and sort of point that out. But I, I, it's fair to say that by the time we get to around about 1500, that form of combat is over. The other things are evolving and getting getting used more commonly on the battlefield. But there is this glorious period in the in the 11th century, 12th century, 13th century, where the knights, particularly in Western Europe, and when those Western knights went on crusade were the most exciting thing that you would see or most terrifying thing you're going to see on the battlefield
0: excellent Sam
1: so really I'm kind of looking at the the tail end of of knighthood really Um, it's had its heyday as Jem said and so I'm now looking at really at the 15th century and more specifically the wars of the roses in England and that was a conflict, really. Uh, it was really a series of conflicts, but it was uh, notorious for its brutality and its high, high mortality amongst the, uh, the upper echelons of society. Um, there were still notions of chivalry kind of around at the time, um, but really uh, it was very, very brutal. And the battlefield was uh, not a, not a very particularly friendly place for your, your knight to be in that period. Um, we also start to have the emergence of non-knightly weapons. So firearms are becoming more prominent on the battlefield, cannons, and so on. Um, so really, it's it's the death of chivalry, if you like, and the, the, the waning of knighthood.
0: So what constituted a knight, then, in each of these times and places?
2: Well, in the early era, uh, this is the traditional feudal period, and keeping things simple the king or monarch ruled and owned all the land. So when you hear of things like the Count of Anjou or the Duke of Burgundy or or wherever, all those aristocrats owed money to the king. They they owed something to the king because actually they were renting the land from the king. Now, sometimes it was money, but far more often, The king needed an army, so where does this army come from? Depending on the amount of land you had, that's the amount of knights that you owed them. So knights, if you like, were almost like a a form of payment for your territory in a particular kingdom. And those knights themselves would live on that estate. So So knights weren't just warriors. They had their own areas, parcels of land to, to look after, to ge- generate revenue from. But when the call came that it was the campaign season, they had to strap on their armor and head to wherever the, the king needed them. So that's how they kind of fitted in to, uh, as a whole into the strata of, of society, particularly in the early era of, of uh, feudal life.
0: And Sam... You, you mentioned non-knightly weapons coming in, so I, I sense a change.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic system um, of, of landholding and so on is broadly the same, um, and the way armies are raised and, and so on. Um, but of course, dealing with the Wars of the Roses, we're dealing with a civil war. This isn't a, a far-flung conflict in, in terms of a crusade. It's not fighting in France. Um, we, we have nobles fighting one another Um, and and quite often there would be uh, treachery involved, there'd be changing of sides. Uh, So I think it was a bit more precarious, potentially, for for the individual knight, who was still a a minor landholder, he had tenants on his land and and so on. Um, But potentially, it's a very much more, sorry, it's a much more volatile situation that he might find himself in.
0: And was there anything in particular uh, beyond the nature of the Wars of the Roses, for example, this brutal civil war that brought about the downfall, really, of what we think of as a, as a traditional knight, Sam?
1: Um, well, I, I think it was really the, uh, the sort of wider technological developments, developments within Europe, uh, generally speaking, that, that kind of brought an end to that knightly way of fighting. Um, already in uh, in the Hundred Years' War, the English armies had figured out that uh, archery was a key uh, a sort of battle-winning element. And uh, so they really put emphasis on fighting on foot. So the uh, even the English knights would fight on foot. Um, and they had a number of uh, crushing victories over the French mounted troops at places like Cressy and Poitiers and so on. Uh, and that style of fighting basically... It comes through into the 15th century uh, and indeed the War of the Roses and so on. So already the knightly image is suppressed, if you like. They're they're not really using their horses very much. They'll be on the battlefields, uh, but they'll be using them largely to either run away or to chase down people uh, who are on the other side and running away. There are one or two small cavalry charges. For example, Richard III's charge at Bosworth is a, a kind of notable example of that. But generally speaking, they were fighting on foot. Adding into that, you have the, this development of firearms. Um, and that starts way back into the sort of 1320s. You start getting uh, firearms appearing and cannon appearing. Um, and by the late 15th century, they are a huge part of any army. Although the English do, because of this emphasis on archery, they do actually lag behind a little bit in adopting firearms and cannon. Uh, in comparison to say the Burgundians. But they do have them and they have uh, sizable artillery trains.
0: Jem, what is feudalism in medieval Europe and how did knights fit into it specifically?
2: So feudalism was basically the structure of society, who's in charge. Being basic about it, the king owned all the land. So when you hear of something like the Count of Anjou, they actually had to rent the land from the king and how did they do that they did that with knights because the king at some point is going to need an army and in the feudal era there basically weren't any standing armies so people would gather together and fight during the campaigning season the, the summer season it's why there are very few battles in the middle of winter because it's hard to uh, feed the troops also people weren't ready to go anywhere then so the the knights themselves were in essence payment for these aristocrats to to have their land so the the knights themselves were minor landowners in their own right they had some of the land to look after themselves so what they were like at any given day kind of depended on what time of the year we're talking about in the middle of the winter they would have been you know hunkered down like everybody else in the middle of the snow in the middle of the summer they probably would be sitting on their horse heading into a battle somewhere so they they had quite the varied life they actually would have spent more time looking after their lands than they would have been fighting in the in the fields but uh you know so they were quite an interesting group which has now been misremembered as dealing with damsels fighting dragons and writing constant poetry now there were these elements of chivalry there not the dragon bit but this whole thing about uh, yeah uh, chivalric love as as portrayed in mort d'arthur you know the, although the arthurian legends are set far far art. earlier
0: the art of courtly love.
2: In, indeed, yes. So <laughs> while they are, um, you know, while King Arthur is, is, you know, about a thousand years earlier, really what it's describing is how a knight should be in something like 1200. And it was something that all knights aspired to try and be. Obviously, it was a little bit different on a battlefield. But yes, that that's kind of how they fitted in to the society as a whole in, in the early era.
0: Okay, so they... They had what sounds like as important an economic as military role, and it was seasonal. Yes. Jem, could you walk us through a typical day in the life of one of these knights in the early medieval period? We understand they've got several different tasks they might have to perform, but how might they have balanced their uh, responsibilities to, to both parts of their lives?
2: OK, well, as I said, the vast majority of the time, they're probably going to be tending to their lands. They would have got up at sunrise, just like everybody else did, um, and they, they would have worried about the estate and you know the, what the situation was with the local population. That would have been the main day, except I'm going to throw something else in, because in the early medieval period, and certainly by the time you get to the era of like the War of the Roses, there this just didn't exist anymore. You get the military orders. And these knights were really weird and different to to the other knights. They were the elite of the elite. And you might be aware of monks who stay in a community and they pray all day long. They are dedicated to God. And these guys were the same, except instead of praying to God, they fought for God. They evolved out of the Crusades and you get sort of famous names like the Templars and Hospitallers and in Germany you get the Teutonic Knights. So these these particular knights wouldn't have been worried about the the day-to-day running of estates. Instead, they would have been worried about, well, more military training than the average knight and also things like their, their spiritual and religious life. These people literally fought for God. Um, so they, uh, because they had more times of training, probably would have seen more action than your average knight as well. Um, these guys really were the the, the the cream of the crop when it came to knights in things like the 1100s and 1200s. Saying that, though, it's just a step down and you get your typical, let's say, English or French knight. And then it is a huge tumble down a massive mountain before you get to something like a peasant, peasant levyman who would have had almost zero armor. Almost zero training. Here's a sharp stick. Good luck. Um, until they started equipping them with longbows, in which case, you know, now now they got a chance to to get at those um, uh, those well encased uh, knights. But yes, you get the famous battles like Crécy and Agincourt, where the vast majority of damage done was done with really cheap archers and not these knights that were fabulously expensive to kit out one thing I, I loved is uh one fact i dug out is they would never have seen the actual money but an average peasant person in sort of the 12th century their entire year it, they would have generated about one pound and that was the same cost as a decent sword for one knight. so that's you know an entire peasant's year's salary could get you one night sword
0: and Sam, listening to Jem talk about these different ways in which the knighthood was organized um, with respect to their broader community and the constituents who they were in some ways responsible for. I wonder if you could uh, comment on on how that changed or stayed the same by the time period you're dealing with. You, you did mention that, that you tended to see plenty of landholding nights still at that point, but more militaristic organization. I, I'd just love if you could jump in and, and comment about that.
1: Yeah, so uh, as you said, it really, uh, a lot of it was mostly the same in, in their experiences of, of landholding and tending estates and, and so on and so forth. And they would have uh, tenants on their lands that they would be looking after. Um, but it's also worth mentioning that the knight would have responsibilities to the lord or whoever was above them in terms of uh, services as a retainer to that, that nobleman. Um, so that might be things like um, even serving food to that particular lord, or it might be helping with matters on his estate. It might be accompanying him to uh, some sort of local meeting as a a representative or or even a bodyguard perhaps Um, or it might be uh, accompanying him hunting and and things like that Um, so a knight kind of had duties to those above him uh, in peacetime as well in a sense uh, like that but militarily speaking as Jem said uh, the knightly orders and so on are are kind of gone they don't really exist anymore Um, but what you did find sometimes is that uh, occasionally, knights would be effectively mercenaries uh, for hire or they'd be, they'd be sent off to, uh, to serve in other armies. So for example, um, to give a, a, a brief example, this particular knight uh, who I have in mind is a, a chap called Sir John Middleton. Basically, he finds himself in the Burgundian army in the 1470s. And he is a relatively low ranking knight in England, uh, pretty unnoteworthy. He owns a small estate in Northumberland, but he manages to rise to prominence in the Burgundian army that he's commanding something like 1700 men uh, by 1477. And he's in command of an entire company, basically, within that army. And what they do is they put all the Englishmen who have gone over to Burgundy to serve as mercenaries under his command and he's commanding this overall English unit and of course it's very attractive to people to do that because there's the opportunity to earn quite a lot of money uh, plundering and so on and so forth there's also just that idea of adventure you know there were I'm sure a lot of uh, fairly low-ranking knights who perhaps weren't that satisfied with just tending their land year after year and wanted a little bit more out of life.
0: Yeah. I mean, farming can be dull. <laughs> so exactly. exactly. And dealing with the peasants who are fighting over their one pound a year. I can imagine that, that adventuring in the foreign armies would have been quite appealing to some people.
1: Exactly. And, and also in, in the 15th century as well, you have the, the standing garrison at Calais. Uh, because obviously Calais is an English uh, holding at that point. So and that that was the only standing force that really existed in England at the time. Uh, And so I'd imagine for quite a lot of people, that was quite a popular posting. There were perhaps around a thousand men in the garrison at any one time. Um, And if you really wanted to see action, that was probably the place that you were trying to go. um, Or into, say, the Burgundian army. But uh, that would be the place that you would try and get some combat experience under your belt. When we're talking about the War of the Roses, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we're really looking at okay, the duration was about 30 odd years from the first battle to the last, but really we're looking at very short or sort of sporadic campaigning within that time of perhaps on average about 25 days per campaign. So they're really not, they're not a long drawn out foreign war um and they no that sounds
0: incredibly brief actually they they were yeah
1: (laughs) absolutely yeah and and, i mean the the main reason for that really is that they're so expensive um and you have them bringing armies together at the absolute last possible moment where they have to pay them the minimal amount um and of course find food for the shortest period of time
0: yeah well and that's also interesting and it it brings to mind the question of uh you know how how knights were paid, you know, were they actually paid in money or treasure or, um, you know, promotions, (laughs) and what kind of opportunities for social mobility they had as a knight?
1: Well, I think certainly in the later periods, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the the same for the the earlier period or not, but generally speaking, you, you would hope for reward for your service, if you like. So by accompanying your lord loyally in whatever he wanted you to do, whatever fight that he had to fight, you would hope that he would then reward you for it. So that might be extra lands, you know, that might be a favourable position uh, politically or something like that. Or he might, there might be some manoeuvring that you can do socially as a result of the influence that your lord would have. Um, There would also be a a monetary element as well in that uh, if troops were needed to be raised, the Lord would effectively have, I've got this amount of money, I need you to raise this amount of troops. And of course, um,
0: it's expensive to feed and outfit these people, but with something other than a sharp stick. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) But by the time you get to the 15th century, even the the militia sort of levy troops are relatively well equipped. Um, You know, there's a lot of longbows. Uh, there's a lot of bills and, uh, and swords that people have. There's an early 16th century uh, survey that's done, actually. So just slightly after the Wars of the Roses. And it's, it names individuals within various parishes and all the equipment they have available if they needed to muster in an emergency. And that's a really interesting insight into the types of equipment that people had available to them. And people are relatively well equipped. There's still lots of people who don't really have anything. Um, but yeah, they're certainly not your, in inverted commas, peasant with a, a sharpened stick. Um, but, uh, yeah, basically, you as a knight, you would probably hope your, your best reward would be a bit of uh, social mobility and perhaps some extra land or things like
2: that. And if I may to
0: sort of jump in, yeah, please, in there. Jim, I'd I'd love to, yeah, please. So so fine. so
2: from Sam's point of view, I agree with everything he said, um, but comparing it, comparing it to the earlier era, there's a little less social mobility later on. You know, if you like, the stratas have been more ossified. You've now got these these sort of um these aristocratic families that even if let's say the current Duke of wherever is having a bad time of it. They've got enough family around them They might fall in and out of favor of, of the king or which faction etc But there's enough of them to potentially keep that family still going like the Percy's being quite a famous one that sort of lasted into the Tudor era For example, um, however early on well, I, again, I'm gonna sort of shatter things for you Knights they do jousting well kind of because actually the joust was the lowest most least interesting thing of early medieval tournaments or uh, the early era of the knights um tournaments did happen and if we're looking at knightly training this is where people learnt the skills of war however the main event was something called the melee and uh, so using social mobility, I, I have an individual, William Marshall, Sam, it's a bit before your time, but he, he, do you know about anything about William? Uh,
1: I, I know a little bit about him, yes, but I, there, I'm sure I don't know as much as you.
2: Well, yeah, so so he he's one of these ones where you're going to talk about a knight. William Marshall's a pretty sort of like cookie cutter type of knight. so he... As we both pointed out, none of these knights were exactly lowly born. There were obviously poor knights, there were wealthier knights, but peasants just didn't get turned into knights. If they did, that's the exception that proves the rule. But anyway, so William came from a pretty low low stakes knightly family. But he went to these melees and he was really good at them because what a melee was, was in essence an entire battle where we're not trying to kill each other. Uh, Quite often the swords would not be sharpened, for example. So, you know, there there was lots of rough and tumble, but the thing you could do and something that William did more than a hundred times is you could kidnap a famous or wealth or wealthy or well-known knight from the other side and you could hold them to ransom. And William made a fortune that way.
0: But that was allowed?
2: <laughs> that was absolutely allowed. And indeed in actual battles that was allowed. The, what, the most controversial moment of the Battle of Agincourt in 1415 is the English uh, really were heavily outnumbered by the French. Uh, but they were winning and they had all these knights that had, they, they'd kept because these people were worth ransoms. I mean, there is the term, the king's ransom, both Richard the Lionheart and also, as I mentioned, the, the French king was captured at the Battle of Poitiers. But the yeah, most controversial moment in the Battle of Agincourt is um, they the, the amount of, of captives almost was the same as the amount of English soldiers, so when the French fought, uh, charged again, Henry V had uh, had to make a judgment call because he needed all his knights at the front line to fight the French but who's going to look after all these still armed or uh, well maybe not armed but armoured knights behind their lines so he he lifted the flag saying no quarter and ordered the execution of these men. This is would be considered a war crime today. That's, that sounds we,
0: like bad sportsmanship.
2: Yeah absolutely you know it's argued either way basically the French think it was a war crime at the time. The English were saying come on when you're outnumbered what are you going to do? It was a Horribly pragmatic choice I'm not going to get into the middle of that But the point there is Is it shows you that Even in a battle to the death It was better off grabbing one of these guys Because their family would Would stump up a huge pile yeah. of cash for them yeah. So if that happens in real battles You can see in the fake battles You could do it anyway oh, And so how- the-
0: Yes. Oh, go sorry, on. keep going. No, no, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought you were done.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so William Marshall, uh, he ended up becoming sort of well known to Henry II and was a key part of his retinue. And towards the end of Henry's reign, he's fighting a civil war with his own son, Richard the Lionheart. And William Marshall is the only person in the records who actually Uh, knocks Richard off his horse. Now, Richard was a terrible king of England, but everybody knows he was a pretty uh, awesome general and fighter and warrior, because he was. So William was better than Richard. And when Henry died, I guess the question is, well, surely William's still going to hold a grudge. But William was always loyal to the crown. So he, he made his name under Henry II, Richard's dad. But then when Richard became king, he was loyal to Richard. And indeed, when Richard died, he was loyal to his brother, John. And when John died, and there's a nine-year-old Henry III on the throne, by then William Marshall was pretty old, but everybody trusted him so much that he was the person who had the responsibility of this new nine-year-old boy king. So, you know, William sort of um, worked with all these different kings. He was always loyal to the crown. And this all came from the fact he made cash from, in, in essence, kidnapping people but he was kidnapping them legitimately.
0: I love that story. I mean, that's a great way to claw your way up the ladder. But I have to say, I'm trying to get my head around it, Jem. What was done to compel um, the kidnapee to lay down his arms and say, okay, I am going to succumb to be kidnapped what, what did he put him in a headlock <laughs> how did that work
2: <laughs> well, well there were lots of weapons on the ground uh, you know and and actually the, the, the really fascinating thing uh, everybody listening to this podcast go onto youtube particularly in poland Um, these melees still exist. They are competitively fought. And so, you know, you can literally see the 2019 sort of like championships as you see all these guys in armor just smashing into each other. Um, It is a fascinating sight. Uh, Sam, have you seen any of this or do you have any thoughts on any of that?
1: Uh, Yeah. Oh, I've I've seen plenty. Yeah, I think it's absolutely mad. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, Sam,
0: when I see what you guys are doing with your reenactments, you're a little bit more what I would think of as civilized.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I dabbled very briefly in a bit of full contact sort of fighting and uh, it, it wasn't for me, I tell you. It's, uh, <laughs> once you get a sword wrapped around your head as hard as it will go, it, it really puts you off. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the stuff that I kind of uh, get involved with, uh, it's a little bit more sedate. It's more about the, uh, the crowds who are there sort of getting an appreciation of what, Perhaps what the medieval period looked like a little bit, without all the blood and the dying. Um, <laughs> but but uh, interestingly, the this talk of uh, ransom and so on, it, it it's interesting to compare that with how it played out in the Wars of the Roses. And as I mentioned before, the War of the Roses really was typified by huge casualties amongst the upper echelons of society. Taking people for ransom really wasn't really a thing in the War of the Roses um, and it became more and more personal as the conflict went on and it's possibly one of the reasons that the the whole thing kind of ground on and on and on really in that sons whose fathers had been killed sort of had a bit of a vendetta against the people that had done it and um, quite often nobles were executed very, very regularly in fact and you even have occasions like after the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, uh, Edward IV, uh, who's the Yorkist king, he's victorious in the battle and the Lancastrians are fleeing from the fields, trying to cross the river at Tewkesbury and some of the leading uh, nobles, the Lancastrian nobles, take refuge, refuge in Tewkesbury Cathedral and basically you'd think that that would be a, a safe place, they're seeking sanctuary, it would be a, a religious uh, sort of right that they could claim uh, but no basically edward the fourth has them dragged out he puts on a bit of a mock trial in effect a show trial and has them all executed in the town square and it, it's as jem said it, you you'd consider it these days to be a war crime um but from i think edward's perspective they were basically committing high treason against their king and that was a justified punishment
2: and um, if, I, so, if I may, sorry, uh, sorry, yeah. Sam, but I, oh, I know yeah. that you're a bit of an expert on the Battle of Barnet. And that, that happened like a, about a month before the Battle of Tewkesbury. And of course that was yeah. famous for Richard Neville, this, you know, the Earl of Warwick, this a man so powerful he was nicknamed the Kingmaker. So I'm, I'm gonna pass that back over to you. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Basically, what, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful noble in England, he's, he's killed in the battle. Um, the accounts are a little bit hazy as to exactly how he's killed, but some say he was fleeing to his horse. Again, it comes back to this idea that everyone's fighting on foot. If the battle goes badly, you've got to get back to your horse very, very quickly. Um, other, others sort of claim that he was just kind of killed in the fighting. Um, but, yeah, he, he's incredibly high-ranking, and he's just hacked to pieces, basically. Um, you, you look at Richard Third. You know, his body was obviously found in Leicester a few years ago. There were various wounds on that body that were humiliation wounds. We're not just talking a single blow that killed him and that was it. Okay, he's effectively been usurped from the the throne by Henry Tudor, but he's still got these humiliation wounds, people stabbing him as he was sort of perhaps was dragged past, things like that. You look at the burials from Towton in 1461. And again, no one quite knows the manner in which the people in the, in the burial were killed. Were they uh, chased down, fleeing from the battlefield? Were they actually executed? Uh, certainly what you can tell is that the wounds on the vast majority of skeletons were far more than were needed to kill the individuals. We're talking basically massive bludgeoning, horrendous cuts to the head with swords, with pole axes, with war hammers, things like that. Um, we don't know if any of them were noble, if any of them were sort of more low ranking or anything like that. But what you can tell is the brutality of the conflict. You know, and, and, and that is from all layers of society. It's not just the lower ranks who are getting that. It's all the way up to the, the top of the tree. Um, so, yeah, it, it really wasn't very pleasant for a knight to live through that because it was fairly likely that if you were on the losing side, Y- you'd meet your maker one way or the other, definitely.
0: Wow, you really, you guys are talking about death knells. This is the death knell to all of my images of chivalry.
1: Chivalry, yes, it, it really didn't have much of a place on the, the battlefields of the Wars of the Roses. There was still this idea of chivalry and the, the sort of a knight could perform a feat of arms on the battlefield and it would be honorable and, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, I, I think chivalry by this time was a thinly veiled excuse to commit some pretty horrific things. Um, and to, to go back to the point that I, my second point that I uh, forgot earlier about the artillery, <laughs> I remembered it. Um, you're facing unchivalrous weapons. So not only do you have a weapon that can defeat your armor as a knight, You're you're effectively entirely vulnerable You also have a weapon that you can train a man to use in an afternoon If you're facing archers an archer takes a lifetime almost to become become competent to be able to pull heavy poundage bows but you can put a a handgun or later an arquebus or something like that in the hand of a child you can train them to fire it in an hour and You can kill a knight, so it's the nature of warfare is changing in this period, and it's it's becoming less and less chivalrous, if you like, and there's less and less opportunity for chivalry.
0: Well, I I mean, and this just makes me want to ask Jem um, because I don't think I've heard a whole lot that smacks of chivalry in, in in the terms that I think of it, at least in what you've said either. But was there ever a time that this sort of stereotypical notion of of chivalry in knighthood was real?
2: Well, there was and there wasn't. Uh, For example, One of the things you may or may not be aware of is in Western Europe, there are a lot of feast days. This is the feast day of St. David or of St. Patrick or whatever. And actually, if you look at the Catholic calendar, pretty much every day is the the feast day (laughs) of a saint. And the reason for that was because on religious days, you weren't allowed to carry weapons. So to keep the peace, the Knights were constantly not able to carry their weapons, uh, the, the Knights were also painfully aware that they, they were Christian, they were aware of the Ten Commandments and one of the big ones was thou shalt not kill. So. One of the uh, one of the impetus, one of the great driving forces of the Crusader movement is you have the Pope talking about these uh, these papal indulgences and absolutions where basically if you go from if you basically get on your horse and ride from England all the way to Jerusalem then you are going and fight the evil Saracens. I'm using that term in inverted commas, seeing I'm half Saracen myself. But anyway, um, the, the point is that, that was the, uh, it was electrifying across Europe because finally I could do the job I was good at and I was guaranteed to go to heaven. So those two That's things, good people, yeah, people believed in heaven in those days, big time. And so, yeah, I mean, what an amazing offer. Why would you not want to go there? Which is why the Crusader movement lasted for so very, very long, so that really did appeal to them. So there is that an area of, if you like, it's a mindset that we can't really get our head into today. We just don't think that way anymore. Um, but you know, other things like when it came to discussions and ambassadorships, and uh, you know, coming up with peace treaties at that point, in sort of the, the social accords, the, the chivalry, and in inverted commas, absolutely. Uh, worked but yeah it's very hard to be chivalrous if you're being if you know most of your knights have just been wiped out by grubby English peasants with longbows at, at that point you know it's all breaking down and if you like to paraphrase Sam what really the, the reason why we don't have knights anymore in any practical sense is uh, they, they became redundant. Uh, you, there was m- modern warfare and in inverted commas by the 1500s just didn't need them anymore. But if I may, Karen, can I talk to you briefly about duvets and crash helmets? Of course. Why See, wouldn't um, I
0: want to hear about that? <laughs>
2: You see, I'm going to hope that Sam's going to back me up on this one. But whenever we see movies of knights, they almost always get it wrong. Uh, particularly when you see uh, people in, again, uh, local phrase or, or common phrase chainmail, because you see them put on the chainmail and you see them like put a little hoodie of chainmail over their bare head. And then they run into battle going, rah, no knight ever did that. <laughs> because actually, if you think about it for a moment, uh, something like a chainmail shirt will absolutely stop things cutting you and not a, a sword will do nothing to you really. This is why actually a surprising amount of heavy weapons, as Sam's mentioned, warhammers, but maces, which is basically a metal club. Um, you know, you, you smack somebody with that, it doesn't matter if you don't penetrate the armor, I'm still gonna crack your ribs or give you concussion, and then I will finish you off with the next blow. So uh, chainmail was very use, uh, useful against those things, but you still got that blunt force trauma. So what did they do? they had something called a gambeson underneath it, a padded jacket. Think of it like a duvet underneath your armor. And so again, if we're talking about the Crusades, you had knights from Europe in these sort of drippingly hot Middle Eastern summers standing there in a woolen gambeson and over that a coat of chain mail uh, with a full face helm on in like 40 degrees heat, And you can start seeing why knights had problems sometimes in Middle Eastern battles as well. They would be dropping through heat exhaustion at times too. But with that padded underneath, um, there are also um, uh, stories and, and chronicles that, sh- that talk about the knights looking like uh, geese because they've been peppered by so many uh, Saracen arrows, but none oh, of them had actually penetrated. Oh, did they stick penetrated. in? Yeah, <laughs> but they, they, they stuck they, out. <laughs> they, yeah, so they were just sticking out of them, but but you know they're not actually oh. causing any harm, uh, 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 as it were. And it was the same thing with their heads because again, if I put chainmail on my bare head, if I hit you with anything, it's still going to hurt like hell because your your head's covered in in metal, um, and that's why. When you look at medieval manuscripts, it does look like they're wearing crash helmets because they're basically wearing that same padding round their heads. um, You know, which which creates beautiful amounts of protection. But again, think of how hot this is, whilst you're also trying to exert yourself in a field of battle.
0: No, and now, heavy. I'm pretty sure
2: it, uh, Sam's yeah. going to agree with this. Uh, pretty heavy as well. Obviously, it starts raining; it's going to get heavier too. But uh, even with the full plate armor, they tended to wear gambeson's underneath them as well for, for, you know, as shock absorbers. Is is that right, Sam? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and
1: I, I can certainly attest to how hot it gets wearing this kind of stuff in the middle. No, of Oh yeah, tell uh, us. E- you, you've even been a, there. Even a British summer. Yeah, I mean, um, just can I make an early uh, a point just on one of Gem's earlier points?
0: anything um, you would like please
1: <laughs> um jen was talking about the uh, feast days and this sort of idea of religion being important of course um and not fighting on particular days and so on I- ironically um again the war of the roses is very different in that sense because we've got major battles fought on religious days so for example the battle of towton is fought on palm sunday um, and you've got uh, the battle of barnet fought on easter sunday Uh, So even by that period, these days really were still perfectly legitimate days to have a battle on. Um, They didn't really seem to care that much. And, well, they would happily execute people after the battle, even on a religious day. So that's an interesting comparison with, again, how things sort of shifted um, away from chivalric notions and so on and so forth.
0: Well, but, But, you know, is is there any way in which you've seen that... um, on the flip side that the religious connotation of a, of a battle that is won on a christian feast day particularly easter sunday the, the king of kings <laughs> feast day well, was used as a you know a justification we've got god on our side
1: yeah i mean of, of of course the the victor will often say yes well it's down to god that i've had my victory there's a really interesting example actually the battle of mortimers cross and uh, that's 1460 yeah 1460 um yeah the the battle of multimus cross in 1460 you have this really rare natural phenomena called a parhelion, where basically due to a sort of refraction in the atmosphere three suns appear or they they, it looks like three suns have appeared in the sky and again edward the fourth he's not the king at this point he's the earl of march but he's leading the army and this sign appears in the sky and of course it really freaks out his troops. Um, but being sort of quick thinking and thinking on his feet, he says, no, look guys, it's, it's the Holy Trinity. It's a sign. God is on our side. And they go on to win the battle. That's
0: genius military leadership as well as yeah, politicking, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. So yeah, there, there certainly is this element of religious symbolism and so on that still plays into uh, plays into things. But yeah, they certainly had no qualms with fighting on particular religious days or anything like that.
0: So Sam, what happened to the the poor knights fighting in, in hotter climes or even cooler climbs um, in terms of garb and gear in the later period?
1: Well, the, the main development as metal working technology improves and they can start forging larger and larger metal plates is you start to get the emergence of plate armor and in the 14th century that's really more sort of composite garments that have slightly smaller plates in them um, and that develops into the 15th century down sort of two uh, avenues you have what's called a brigandine which is again very very small plates that are riveted into a effectively a jacket uh, that forms a flexible but very sturdy defense uh, quite often your sort of lower ranking people might wear one of those, although you do get particularly fancy sort of examples. Uh, And then you of course you get the development of full armour, full plate armour if you like. Um, And that it basically extends to cover the entire body, where they can forge quite enormous pieces of metal that are not only thin, so they cut down on the weight, but they're flexible so they can absorb blows from weapons. Um, and basically, that's as they become better at metalworking and they can forge it at higher temperatures, they can create this steel that's both thin and basically hard but flexible, if that makes sense. Um, and it covers the full uh, torso, it covers the arms, the shoulders, the hands, all the legs, all the way down to the feet. And again, you are wearing a padded garment underneath that to absorb some of the blows. It's not necessarily as thick as something you would wear under the mail. It's more what's called an arming doublet. So it's like a a slightly military version of a civilian doublet. It's just a little bit more sturdy, basically. And a lot of the armor will actually be laced to that doublet. So it will keep it really close to the body, meaning that the weight is very well distributed across the body. So actually, Although, if you were to pick all the armor up in a big sack, it would feel quite heavy. Once you've actually got it on, it's not that heavy, really, relatively speaking.
0: It's like ski equipment. Sorry, that's the only <laughs> thing that I can even think of <laughs> to compare. You're carrying all your boots and everything, and somehow. A little all... bit
1: heavier than ski equipment, <laughs> I would say. But it's certainly 60 less. 60 pounds?
2: Than a... Is that about the right <laughs> weight, Sam?
1: Yeah, something like that. Again, it depends slightly on exactly what armor you're wearing. And of course, armor for jousting in particular was generally thicker and. Uh, you know, and, and sort of reinforced and so on. But armor for the field had to be flexible, and it had to be lo- relatively lightweight because you, your life depended on it. Uh,
0: can you tell us about your experiences wearing armor similar to what you've just described, or or has it been similar? What, how has what you've worn in some of these exercises compared to the historically accurate suits of armor that you're describing?
1: Well, the the first thing, I suppose, is that all the armor is is based on real pieces, either pieces that exist in, say, the royal armories um, or copied from effigies of knights which are in churches that are very, very accurate representations of armor. I misspoke.
0: I really should have said um, actual period pieces apologies so what you're wearing is historically accurate as opposed to period
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, so yeah it's all based on stuff from the period Um, and and effectively it works exactly the same as the armor in the period you have to put it on in the same way and that's basically from the feet upwards Um, so you can't start off with the cuirass or anything like that you you basically have to start from the lower legs working up torso arms sort of head and so on and so forth um, there is, as Jem alluded to with the Crusades and so on, there is a real issue with heat. Um, if you imagine you're encasing your entire body in metal, quite often it would be polished metal as well. Some armor was left blackened from the forge uh, so it didn't rust and so on. But often for your higher ranking people, certainly they would have polished armor. And that will get so hot in the sun that you can't actually touch it with bare hands. and you are covering your body in this and you've got padding beneath it and effectively you start to cook really in it, is. Um, And there is a very high risk of heat stroke in, in the middle of summer when you're doing hard physical exertion, you can really only go, you can really only fight for a couple of minutes before you're absolutely exhausted and you have to take a break. Um, on the flip side, the, other major issue is the cold ironically um because again it's the exact opposite the metal will conduct the cold air and it will effectively refrigerate you so you will get really really cold whilst wearing it in the middle of winter Um, so it's really not that pleasant you know (laughs) there's maybe maybe a few days a year where the temperature is just right um but yeah Those are really the main issues. The the wearing of it, the weight, the manoeuvrability, that's actually very good, typically. You know, people have a perception that, I don't know, a knight could get knocked over and they couldn't get back up or they had to be somehow craned onto their horses and so on. That's absolute nonsense, basically. Knights could run, they could forward roll, they could vault onto their horses, they could jump off again, they could climb ladders all sorts of things basically anything that uh, an able-bodied person could do they could do it in armor and of course they're they used to wearing this stuff as well um it's it's very much like you know a modern soldier training with his weapons and, he, and his kit
0: sam you've told us a fair bit about the evolution of protective gear in the latter period of of the medieval era what about the weaponry and that technology how did that change
1: So really, as the medieval period goes on, you you effectively have an arms race between armor and weapons. So you will have a weapon that will defeat a certain kind of armor. Armor will develop to combat against or to defend, sorry, against that weapon. And then a new weapon will come along to defeat that armor and it will keep going on in that way. So, of course, in the earlier periods, when you've just got mostly male protection, As Jem said, that will give you protection against a sword slash, things like that. Uh, Even with the padding under there, uh, it wasn't particularly good at the thrust. Um, A a really firm sword thrust may well still go through the mail and through the padding if you're unlucky. Um, And as Jem said, uh, even a sword cut onto a bony bit of the body will still cause a bit of blunt force trauma, potentially Heavy bruising, or if you're really unlucky, a broken bone, or something like that. Um, so, of course, because it's a little bit vulnerable to the thrust, they start to, uh, as they can create larger metal plates, they start to create torso defenses and and little bits to go on the arms and things like that, um, sort of built out of multiple plates, but larger plates than the little mail ring sort of thing. So, of course. Uh, that will defend you fairly well against things like swords and, and spears and stuff like that. And you then start getting things like maces, and that will just crush straight through blunt force trauma, etc., etc. And in order to combat against that blunt force trauma and, and the various kind of weapons that evolve, of course, you start getting uh, more plate armor. You start getting larger plates; it covers more of the body, and so on and so forth. Um, and of course. One of the main threats throughout the period are arrows um, and plate armor is far more effective at defending against arrows. Although at even short range, uh, at, at short range, even arrows will penetrate plate armor. Um, the, they're such powerful bows that plate armor within sort of 20, 10 yards, depending on how the arrow hits you, it might well st- still penetrate through solid, uh, solid metal. If you're really unlucky, it will find a gap in the armour somewhere and it will really hurt. So plate armour develops, it becomes just generally a better defence. Swords are now almost becoming useless, really, on the battlefield by the 15th century. People will carry them, they're they're still an effective sidearm, um, and you can still get the point of it into the joints of the armour, the gaps and so on. You can still cause damage with it, and indeed you can still cause blunt force trauma um but it's it's definitely a secondary weapon by now and you start getting heavy pole arms of various sorts evolved which is basically a big long wooden stave with a metal head on the end with various spikes and hooks and things like that there are all sorts of different types of those um those are good for getting into the gaps of the armor and for even tripping people so they can be bludgeoned to death while they're on the ground things like that um, and they will just cause blunt force trauma as well because they're quite long, heavy things that you can get a really good swing on. You know, if you imagine the force that a sort of eight foot pole with a big metal head on the end is going to come down on top of you. It's oh, going to be I'd rather really not. I mean, <laughs> no, just absolutely. listening to this
0: litany, <laughs> it's, it's like being in the Tower of London and looking at their their dungeon of, of things. Oh,
1: it, it's, it's not very pleasant, that's for sure. But the, the real kind of, Peak, I suppose, as armour becomes fully encasing and it covers the body head to toe. The real sort of peak of weapon design is the pole axe and that is about approximately a six-foot wooden pole. Uh, on the butt end, it has a spike of some sort, which is used can be used a bit like a spear. But then you have this multifaceted head on the top, and it takes different forms. But you typically have a thrusting spike. Uh, a blade of some sort, and a beak of some sort, or, or a hammer or something like that. And that's effectively the, the Swiss Army knife. Like I was maybe gonna say, that
0: something. sounds like the all-in-one tool. Let's see, what should exactly. I use now? But it, you get be really good to choose quickly, or you get struck down while you're deciding.
1: <laughs> it, exactly. It's basically a weapon for all occasions. Um, you can use the the butt spike to to thrust into the gaps of the armour, Um, You can use it for leverage to trip your opponent, things like that. Um, And the other end, the the spikes and the blades, they're used for causing enormous blunt force trauma that will shatter your organs, it will shatter your bones, even if the armour itself is is intact. Um, Also, one of the main things that it does is it can hook into bits of your armour or straps that fix it all together, rip them apart, it can uh, buckle in plates that don't then articulate properly, so you can't move properly. And if you're there, you're absolutely battered about, the armor's half broken, it's all ripped off your body because you know that someone has got their pole axe hooked into it and has just yanked it off, um, you, you become more and more vulnerable and less and less able to uh, defend yourself. It's not really about defeating the armor in the sense of penetrating through it. It's really about breaking the armor and breaking the body underneath the armor. And, and the pole really is the absolute pinnacle of, of late medieval weapons to do that.
0: Okay, yeah. So let's talk about, about training and uh, about how people became knights, both in this early period and as time went on, if there were any changes in, in the path to knighthood, essentially.
1: So I, I think really in this period, you you were basically the your your lord or whoever but would determine that i am effectively i'm going to make you a knight um, and that would usually i suppose be uh you came from an, ultimately a knightly family and an aristocratic family and you would naturally then become a knight um but quite often it was on the battlefield as well so you do get these uh quite interesting documents that talk about huge numbers of people who are knighted on the battlefield um, and again to bring it back to Tewkesbury there's a really good uh, example of a, of a document that lists all, the, all of these knights and that will be ultimately uh, a reward for service it will be a reward for bravery things like that so it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag and I, I think I mean Jen might correct me if I'm wrong but it's sort of broadly similar in the early early period as
2: well Yeah, pretty much. I mean, this uh, this idea, again, the sort of romantic idea of a peasant boy who finds a sword and then becomes a knight, that that just didn't happen. You already have to be sort of in the system. And at that point, the question is, what happens next? Because if you are a landowner, you're going you know you, you're going to want one of your sons to to run the the property but then you know if you've got three or four sons one of those might end up in the military orders or maybe later on could end up being a mercenary you know, Belgium the low countries were particularly renowned for their collection of mercenaries as was Switzerland strangely as well um uh, I, that that was I, I believe that was still going in in the 1400s is that right Sam
1: that's right yeah
2: absolutely and the um the,
1: it's the Burgundians who are fighting the Swiss in the 1470s, and then uh, the, the Swiss go on to effectively become the most renowned late medieval mercenaries, I suppose, and they inspire then German mercenaries and so on going into the 16th century because they're just ver- very militaristic and very forward-thinking in their tactical approach.
2: Yes, not quite so neutral uh, in the
1: Middle Ages, uh, <laughs> Switzerland. No, absolutely not.
0: And we talked so much about how chivalry was not maybe quite what we imagined from from later periods when this ideal was imposed on knighthood. How did people in the broader community view knights, both in the earlier time period, and then Sam, as we're on the brink of the early modern period?
2: I'm going to guess they're probably the same in the sense that, depending on their situation, they were part of the landed gentry. So if you're a peasant, you would look up to them. They might well be your local landowner. Um, In terms of battle, they would have been the elite units on, on the battlefield and they would have been rich because you need money for all that armor, be it the early era or the late era. So they were respected um they were a necessary part of society it was a militaristic society no matter where you're looking in, in europe in the middle ages and and early modern era too so i'm i'm presumed sam's going to sort of broadly agree with that they, they were part of the system yeah. they were well respected sometimes a little bit feared as well uh, and they had the cash
1: yeah no I absolutely I, I think uh that, that's a pretty accurate assessment there's uh, j- just a bring in a a kind of really interesting example again of this knight uh, sir john middleton um, that perhaps suggests that they weren't always these uh idealized figures that were perhaps respected and so on and so forth um in in 1469 uh, he's actually sued because he he goes on a bit of a robbing spree basically and uh i'm I'm not quite sure if it's on land or on sea because he was involved in uh, a bit of, shall we say, anti-piracy in, in the North Sea. But um, basically he seizes a load of goods that were on their way to Newcastle. And the the document doesn't explain why, but it seems like he was basically just, I don't know, on, on the rob a little bit. So, uh, you know, perhaps you had some nobles who were perhaps trying to adhere to those values of chivalry and be upstanding leaders in the community and look after their tenants and so on and so forth. But like every society, I'm sure you had your, your bad apples as well, who were perhaps, as Jem says, a bit more feared, who were perhaps a bit more lawless uh, and things like that.
0: What would have been the main objective of a knight in his career?
1: Um, I mean, I, I think certainly in the uh, later medieval period during the Wars of the Roses, his main objective would have been to stay alive probably. Um, there's a lot of chopping and changing of loyalties. There's a lot of uh, treachery going on. Of course, I mentioned earlier, a lot of people are getting executed for being on the wrong side. And if you were a fairly low ranking knight and your lord decided to change sides or to follow a particular course of action, you really have no choice but to follow him. And you just had to hope that he'd picked the right side, basically, because perhaps your life might be forfeit if he hadn't.
0: Who held knights accountable?
1: I think probably their their lords would hold them accountable um, to a certain extent. Um, of course, they expected certain things from them. If they didn't come through with whatever it was that they were asked to do, then perhaps there would be some sort of repercussion. Um, but I think certainly on the battlefields they were not especially accountable to anyone really it goes back to what i mentioned earlier about chivalry being this sort of thin veneer to cover up kind of some pretty horrific war crimes in effect so really you you were kind of let loose on the battlefields it's that place where all the boundaries of society are stripped away and that you're faced with a huge group of people that you, you're, you have to sort of dehumanise them in a sense and you can just let everything go. It, it's, it must have been a very strange experience to be in that situation. But your, your actions are incredibly violent, of course, and they're encouraged. they're they're, they're actively encouraged because you're somehow fulfilling this chivalric idea. So you can commit some horrific murder on the battlefield, but you're accountable to no one, unless you happen to be on the wrong side, in which case you may have just signed your own death warrant.
2: So the the other thing that's sort of forgotten about uh, the medieval era is there were lawyers. Um, There was a there were legal systems and there are a number of occasions where knights have been brought in front of a a court It might be something to do militarily or it might be something to do with just land ownership you know, they weren't above the law by any stretch of the imagination and uh, uh, Sam pointed out, you know, if the if the big boss if the local Duke count Earl, whatever had an issue with the knight They're absolutely going to bring it up with them. But I've always found this really interesting. So the first ever example of what could be considered an international war crimes trial happened in the Holy Roman Empire in 1474. So we are talking about pretty much at the end of uh, the War of the Roses. So, I mean, it is sort of contemporary with some of the things that Sam's talking about. And mm-hmm. basically, there was a knight called Peter von Hagenbach um, who was, um, basically he was, uh, he was convicted and beheaded for crimes that he as a knight was deemed to have a duty to prevent. So the whole thing about there are some basics you've got to you, you've got to follow some basic things. You didn't do that, and so his argument about well, why didn't you do those things? Is his argument was literally I was just following orders, and that is a horribly chilling expression that has been used down the centuries to justify all kinds of horrible horrible things. Which personally, I you know, because he was the first person on record to use I'm just following orders to allow some horrific atrocity. I'd like to call it the Hagenbach defense and it didn't work for him and it shouldn't work for anybody else but it does show you that you know that actually courts were more sophisticated than people think they were in the 1300s 1400s etc it wasn't quite as lawless as people are led to believe if they just watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail which is awesome but isn't very historically <laughs> accurate
1: I, th- I think that's the, that's the point to take away really is that the medieval period is very different from how it's typically portrayed it's very sophisticated politically legally um and and warfare is fairly sophisticated as well relatively speaking um particularly with the emergence of guns and so on it, it it's not these sort of scummy peasants wallowing about in the mud claiming they're being uh, being repressed or oppressed um so what i i like to think of the late medieval period more in terms of it being the start of the early modern period because the technology is basically the same the way of fighting warfare uh the 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 way of conducting warfare is more or less the same and you even have in the case of the Burgundian army for our Well, uh, sold,
0: Jem and Sam, this has the been Burgundian so interesting. In I have learned so much. thank was on the field thank of Waterloo. You. Thank you for taking the time There's to an join us. There's amount wow. of
1: artillery. It's, wow, it's really? Absolutely. And, and they are using pike and shot armies, what you'd call pike and shot, which typically people would more associate with the 16th or 17th century. Huge blocks of pikemen, swarms of handgunners who are carrying early uh, matchlock muskets in effect, um, and and huge amounts of artillery. Uh, An army of Burgundy in the 1470s would not look out of place on a battlefield from the 1640s.
0: Given the brutality that you're describing, I have to wonder, was there any of this sort of, just to use a much more modern reference that's that's going to be recognizable to everyone, um, you know, a band of brothers mentality. Was there any kind of shared identity or, um, you know, a, a sense of mutual support that either of you have seen in your research?
2: Well, you know where that phrase comes from. That's from Shakespeare's Henry V. We few, we band of brothers. Absolutely. So, oh, I mean, at the end of the Battle of Crécy, when there was this complete massacre of the French army underneath very early cannons and an awful lot of longbows that's the point where Edward III turns around and says, well, we're we're just the dudes that two things happen. One, we're <laughs> going to create the Order of the Garter, which is, you know, st- still the most exclusive club you can ever be in. The Queen uh, is allowed to choose close personal friends, or you have to be an ex-Prime Minister. I mean, those are pretty strict conditions. And also, uh, there's a fixed number, so you have to wait for somebody to die before you can uh, ever be allowed into uh, the Order of the Garter. So that's, that, that's one thing that happened then. But the other thing then is there were various martial saints so somebody like Saint George for example we're back to dragons Um, Saint George (laughs) the reason why he he was basically he seems to have been a martyred Roman soldier I mean this all this stuff is very dubious it comes from hagiographies but basically he was Christian and he was a soldier so he became basically the patron saint of soldiers and knights uh, across the whole of the uh, whole of Europe but Edward said, well, because we clearly destroyed the French army here, he's not just... A, a patron saint of knights he's a patron saint of England and so that's why that's when Saint George I became the that patron where saint that where that
0: came from okay.
2: yeah but it's worth pointing out he's also the patron saint of Portugal Russia and of course Georgia a country that named itself after him but he's seen as sort of like the martial knightly this these words would have meant nothing to the original George but yes yeah, so you, you do get again this sort of kind of spiritual noble sense of things it's touching on the area of what it most people think of as chivalry particularly this idea of the order of the garter as well
1: uh, uh, absolutely and of course you, you have the uh the order of the golden fleece for example which is effectively the burgundian kind of equivalent of the order of the garter but it, I, I think talking of a band of brothers and, and so on I, I think that's actually a phenomenon that emerges in any period with people who are soldiers Um, You you talk to modern soldiers, you, you talk to veterans, and I'm certain it would be the case in the medieval period and indeed any military period. Soldiers who are serving together, who are fighting together, they're not really doing it when it comes down to it for some great cause or some great leader. They're really just doing it to look after each other and for their immediate leader, be it their local knight, their local captain, whoever it might be. So I think these unofficial bands of brothers really would form in almost any military situation because it's shared hardship, it's shared danger, and it's, you know, you need mutual support in order to get through it. Um, So they might not have been documented, they might not have been written down, but I'm certain that every army would have had these very tight-knit groups of people serving together, maybe even from the same villages and things like that who knew each other previously. Um, creating these unofficial bands of brothers.
2: Aaron, I finally found out a way to get dragons into this. Do you want some dragons? You know I do. (laughs) So, uh, uh, as Sam pointed out, the, the Order of the Garter was the first of these chivalric orders, but once that happened, just across the whole of Europe, there were just a slew of them popping up. And, and you know, they were high status groups of these knights and, and nobles banding together. Usually they have to prove themselves in some way, but in Hungary, in the East, about the time of um, you know, the, the War of the Roses, we have this here, actually a little bit earlier, but we, there was the Order of the Dragon. There we go, Karen. And there was one ruler um, in, uh, in part of modern day Romania who became one of the Order of the Dragon. And he had a son. So he became known as Son of the Dragon. And if you translate that into the local language, that's Drac and Dracula.
0: Oh, I've heard of him.
2: Exactly. So there we go. I've g- I give you vampires <laughs> and I give you dragons at I, the end of all I of this. I thought he
0: was Vlad. Oh, wow. Well, right, yeah, you no, know, Vlad,
2: Vlad was his real name, but that was his. Yeah, g- okay. g- so he was, but he was also known as son of the dragon, which is where you get Vlad Dracula. Vlad Tepes is actually his name.
0: I love it. Blood and fire. It's a great, potent combination.
2: The motto of the um, Salvation Army.
0: Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> the things you know, I love it, Jim. Um, I had no idea. I, I just want to circle back for a second. Um, Sam, what you were just saying really struck me uh, about how we could just infer that there's going to be a certain amount of, of camaraderie and and mutual care and support among those fighting on the medieval battlefields, just as in the modern era. What about military practices? How would modern military um, personnel view the professional activities of medieval knights?
1: That's that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that the first point to make uh, that's sort of related is that when we're talking about a knight wearing armor, and the weight involved, and so on and so forth, and it's distributed over the body. Still, the overall weight is less than a modern soldier will have to carry on their back. So they might actually think that's quite good if they have to carry half the weight. (laughs) Um, In terms of the general approach, it would be quite different, I think, because, of course, we're talking of a period where firearms are still... They're not the dominant weapon on the battlefield in the way that they are in the modern period. Um, but of course, we're talking about the battles, you know, they, they don't happen in isolation. You have all the events leading up to the battle, and then you have all the events after the battle. And perhaps those would have been a lot more similar. Um, you know, you have long marches, you have bad weather, you have a bit of misery. Um, And then, of course, you have, after the battle, you have a sense of loss. Perhaps you've lost some of your friends. You have a sense of relief that you yourself have survived. Um, Perhaps you have a sense of, I don't know, you're feeling a bit revengeful because you've lost people and and it's spurring you on. Uh, And and I think those are probably all emotions that a modern soldier would potentially go through. I've never been in the army, I, you know, I can't say that for certain, but I, I would imagine that they, they would be similar experiences. With regards to the actual fighting on the battlefield, of the, the nature is quite different. Medieval fighting is absolutely in your face. It's right up and close, you know, nose to nose. You can see in the eyes of your opponent as you stab them with your knife or your sword or you hit them over the head with your pole axe. You know, it, it's really horrible, visceral stuff. It
0: yeah, it's hard to even um, get your head around. I
1: mean, absolutely. And, and one of the real... Uh, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll circle back to that point in a sec. So, yeah, it, it's really in your face. It's really visceral. And, of course, that's quite different to modern conflict. Um, modern soldiers might not actually see the enemy that well. Um, they'll be perhaps a few hundred meters away. Of course, they could be closer as well, but generally speaking, the enemy will spend far more time further away than they would in a medieval battle. Your opening engagement ranges on a medieval battlefield would be at extreme artillery range, which really, for the bigger guns, is pushing perhaps a kilometre maximum. But effective arrow range is significantly less. Um, You're looking at about 200 yards-ish maximum. Uh, and of course, it's only going to get closer and closer. Battles were still decided ultimately by hand-to-hand combat on most occasions until one side broke and, and fled the field. Um, one of the things that really is underrepresented in our understanding of the medieval period is the the kind of psychological side and perhaps the trauma that individuals went through. They were typically, perhaps slightly hardier folk than we are in that they would be used to seeing a lot more death around. People die younger, people die uh you know in childbirth, they'd also be actively slaughtering animals and things like that on a regular basis quite often. So that they would be more used to seeing death and gore and so on and so forth. But saying that the experience of that close combat on the battlefield would undoubtedly impart some psychological trauma um, and it's there, there must have been many many cases of what we would recognize today as PTSD um, and, and I'm sure soldiers such as Sir John Middleton who, who was by the end of his life a very experienced soldier they, they would undoubtedly have similar experiences to modern soldiers that they would perhaps struggle to sleep they would um, you know have basically traumatic experiences based on what they'd seen. And I think that that's an interesting avenue to try and explore. We we talk about medieval battles, almost like the people involved are machines, you know, knights are machines, but they're still humans and they're exactly the same humans as we are. They're just influenced by slightly different technology and, and different times. They would have processed things in the same way, felt about things in a similar way perhaps not exactly the same way but a similar way um and their brains would have functioned in the same way so i think there would have been a lot of people who would have suffered longer-term consequences of medieval battles than than just the physical um but saying that a final point there are many examples of soldiers fighting in numerous battles Uh, Again, I mentioned Sir John Middleton, but from the mass grave at Towton, to bring in an archaeological example, there's a body there of a, a soldier that was killed in the battle who had a healed wound on his face. He had received, probably from a sword, a really nasty gash on the side of his jaw that had cut right into the bone. It would have disfigured his face really quite badly. But the bone had showed that it had healed over time. And it's the sort of wound that would have only really been caused in another battle or, or in perhaps a very, very unfortunate accident, but most likely another battle. So clearly you have an individual here who is most likely a low ranking individual who's seen battle previously, yet has still agreed to come to this other battle. So. Perhaps there were some individuals who were, I don't know less traumatized or perhaps just saw it as a good opportunity for earning some money who knows
0: yeah it was their Uh, it was their job right yeah yeah what is it about this profession this military um activity in the past that attracts each of you particularly
2: I think this is a good example of, of where myth meets history. There are just certain things that are inherently cool. It could be the, the samurai in Japan, it could be cowboys in America, it's knights in Europe. It, there, you know, no matter how much, you know, Sam and I are basically on a foolhardy errand trying to tell people that they were grubby and brutish and probably gonna be blown away by a cannon uh, and, and all this stuff because we're never gonna wipe away the the mystique around them. They're soldiers, um, but clearly some soldiers get more space, more of our brain time, more of our history and culture than other types of soldiers. And these ones simply win.
0: Yeah. Wh- what do you wh- what do you make of that? I mean, I, I, this has come up again and again and again in this conversation. We keep bumping up against the ideal of courtly love and chivalry, and you guys, you know, reasonably so, have just knocked it down in every corner. So. Where does that come from and why is it important?
1: I I think that perhaps part of it is, it, it has been romanticized quite a lot by movies and things like that. And I think that's partly responsible for it. Um, but I think one of the interesting aspects is that certain elements of knighthood do continue to this day um, in a, not the same way but a sort of similarish way in that for a start we still have the rank of knighthood so people are aware that it's a thing it's a high ranking sort of thing but it's it's in sort of smaller things so for example let's look at a couple of things you've got a mounted policeman that's a authority figure on a large intimidating horse that is no different to the knight on a horse on a battlefield it still resonates with us because it's intimidating you look at the modern military what do officers carry on ceremonial occasions they carry swords the sword is an absolute symbol of knighthood so we still have these kind of echoes of knighthood even in the modern day i think Um, and perhaps it makes it a bit more accessible or or something like that I, I'm not quite sure but I mean for me personally uh, I, I kind of think it's uh, it's just kind of cool to uh, learn about <laughs> our armor and armor and weapons and how all these things kind of worked in reality um, and then to sit there watching all sorts of movies uh, and point out like a huge nerd that they've got it all wrong but uh, yeah I, I, I think I don't know, it seems to just echo with people and and resonate with them for some reason.
0: Well, this is the million dollar question, or, you know, if it's the early medieval period and one of you is unfortunate enough to be a peasant, it's the one pound question. (laughs) (laughs) Would you gentlemen have made successful knights at any point during this continuum of time we've discussed today?
1: um that that is a good question um i i'm not sure I would be prepared to uh, risk my life quite as often as might have been required of me uh, I, I I quite like my life as you know i 've just got a new puppy, so it would be really sad if I had to go off and get killed in a battle so i I think perhaps to a certain degree in that I would have quite enjoyed certain aspects of the life um, but i think like the vast majority of modern people i'm i'm simply not quite of the right character to be successful in that period
2: yeah i i think that's i i couldn't agree more with sam i'm mean, on top of that i'm also a physical coward as well so you know <laughs> g- give me the longbow i'll i'll try and take him out from a long way away um so yeah, I'm, I'm just not that guy. I mean, look, I, I'm also incredibly jealous of Sam. I've always wanted to put on a full suit of armor, put on that full faced helm just to see what it's like, how easy is it to move around? I'm sure it's partic- It's a bit uncomfortable, that's for sure. Um, I wouldn't want to eat dinner in it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's something, I, and look, if if the queen's listening to this podcast and she's thinking about giving me a knighthood, I'm gonna say yes.
0: (laughs) I heard she was considering it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: she's a big fan, but you know. (laughs) She's
0: doing extra list making in, in isolation during COVID. Medieval battle sites like modern ones played host to epic feats of bravery, skill, and brotherhood. But at the end of the day, They were brutal killing fields, not stages for the display of courtly manners. In a time of endemic military violence, with the constant threat of civilian collateral damage, chivalry was an effort to set ground rules for knightly behavior. While these rules dictated generous treatment of those less fortunate and less powerful, in reality, the institution of knighthood, which promised rich rewards indeed to those who pleased their lords and monarchs, served ultimately to protect the interest of those already in power, for the elite were the only ones who could afford the considerable cost of training and equipment that just getting started in the job required. And this stark truth wouldn't have been lost on the knights who benefited from this systemic form of social control. Even during the Middle Ages, the word chivalry likely summoned a whole host of images of some golden bygone era which, in reality, everyone knew never existed. So it's perhaps no accident that the best examples of what we in the 21st century think of as chivalry are found in tales such as those of King Arthur. A misty blend of myth and fiction, but with that grain of truth in which, like most beloved myths, they are rooted. Thanks so much for joining us today. And please follow our guests, Sam Wilson on Twitter and Instagram at Conflict Archeo, and Jem Daduchu on Twitter at Jem Diducci. Take care until next time. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network, and is made in
1: collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan La Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional
0: content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.